following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Well, if you wouldn't mind, if you have your Bibles, please open up to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. Before I read the passage, I'd like to make a few concerns known to you before we look to the word through the preaching. For 32 years, I was a school teacher, and for 20 of those years, I was a, an AP U.S. history teacher. I call myself a patriot. I love this country. I love our Constitution. And I have a man crush on George Washington, <laughs> on Booker T. Washington, and on Ronald Reagan. I also know that we have several people in here that lived in a communist nation and didn't have the, the privilege of what many of us have had growing up in this country. We have some from Cuba, some from Eastern Europe, and some from China that have lived under communism. I have two uncles that died in World War II in France, two of my father's older brothers. But today we're going to be looking at the Word of God in reference to a Christian's relationship to civil government. And I'm not going to have an opportunity to qualify a lot of the statements that I make. A lot of questions are probably going to be brought up in your mind today. And um, maybe for another time we can deal with that. But I do want to bring to you 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Before we read it again, it's one, one more uh, concern I have is that there are institutions that God ordained at the beginning in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 2, verse 24, he ordained the institution of marriage and family. He also ordained the Sabbath worship and the Sabbath day. We see that in Genesis 2, 3. He also instituted work and labor, Genesis 1, 28. And he also instituted civil government in Genesis 1, 27, Genesis 9, 6, and Romans 13, 1. And the apostle Peter, in this chapter, from, cha- uh, from chapter 2, verse 13, all the way to chapter 4, verse 11, he deals with these institutions. He deals with the government, he deals with labor, he deals, deals with family, and he deals with uh, the one another uh, passages in the church. So with those concerns behind me, let's read the passage that we're going to look at today. Follow as I read 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free, yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, 
but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Well, let's pray one more time. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you've given us your word, which presents to us the gospel of Jesus Christ and the salvation that he's accomplished on our behalf on that Roman cross. We thank you for the gospel. We thank you for the word of God. We thank you for your Holy Spirit. And we pray that your spirit would help us now as we look to your word for your glory and honor and for our good. And we pray in Christ's name, amen. When my children were younger, I caused an unnecessary and unfortunate confrontation, which I believe may help to illustrate an important concept Peter's making in the passage before us this morning. About 20 years ago, my daughter Katrina, who is now married with a daughter of her own, played basketball for Boca Hoops, Little League. Most of her games were played at Sugar Sand Park, which has very pleasant indoor gyms with plenty of room for parental seating. My wife and I, along with our three other children, often sat high up in the bleachers so we could lean against the wall where we enjoyed seeing the whole court at once. One of the things that got me agitated and aroused at some of those games was when the referees would ignore or forget about the three-second rule. For those of you that don't watch basketball, the three-second rule forbids an offensive player from being inside the lane. The lane is the rectangular space below the basket from the baseline to the free throw line, sometimes called the what? The paint. Offensive players cannot stand in the lane for more than three seconds while the offensive team controls the basketball. If an offensive player goes in the lane for three seconds, she must get out, and then when she goes back in, it resets for a new three-second time period. If you, say, if you stay in the lane for more than three seconds, the referee should blow the whistle, call a three-second violation, and then the other team gets the ball for an offensive possession. In Little League games, the referees are often inexperienced and older gentlemen making a few bucks on the side while enjoying their retirement. And they're notorious for missing three-second violations. Being the excited parent not bashful to express my displeasure with unskilled or inept officiating, I thought I had a good idea to get the referees to do their jobs. What I would do sometimes is start counting very loudly, so loud that every soul in the entire gym could hear me. One, two, three, and I'd continue. Four, five, six, seven, and so on, until the possession of the ball would change over from offense to defense. I wanted everyone to know how unfair the, unfi the officiating was. My hope was to verbally and metaphorically provoke the refs to understand that they're neglecting to enforce the three-second rule. I was openly and blatantly demanding and insisting that they do their job. Well, on this particular day, which I shall never forget, 
one of the referees had listened to my aggressive exploits one too many times. He straightway blew his whistle, stopped play, walked over to the side of the court that I was on, stood there while holding the ball under his arm, looked directly at me and asked me a question loudly. Young man, do you wish to stay in this gym and watch your child play basketball? And I said, yes. And he said, then stop interfering and causing disruption or I'm going to promptly kick you out. Then he turned around, blew his whistle, and proceeded to start up play again. I sat there thinking how wrong I'd been. I had been thoroughly corrected, embarrassed, humbled, and eventually remorseful and repentant. In God's kindness, this providence that was a rebuke became a blessing to me. You may think, well, wait a minute, you have the Bill of Rights and you have freedom of speech. Yes, but freedom is no excuse for vice. I came to realize how my emotions and my zeal, along with my ignorance and pride, guided me toward wrong and shameful behavior. I had no authority or prerogative with those officials. They were merely trying to do their jobs to the best of their ability. I showed no grace or respect for them, nor did I display any respect for the players and the parents on both teams. Even though, the basket, even though basketball is a spectator sport, that doesn't mean I should use my freedom to be rude and disrespectful to the referees, the players, the coaches on both teams, and all the parents and spectators that were there. I pray that the principles from 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, are used by God to help us all gain clarity regarding the proper boundaries and the proper relationship Christians are to have with civil government. May God help us to examine our heart's attitude with reference to civil authority. And if need be, may we mourn over our sins. Mourning is personal grief over personal sin. The kind of mourning that brings comfort is the mourning experienced by a man or woman, boy or girl, who begins to recognize the blackness of his and her sin. We see the blackness of our sin as we become more exposed to the purity of God and the purity of his word. For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow and is a discerner of our thoughts and intents of our heart. Isaiah knew of this kind of mourning as God blessed him with a vision of his deity in his vision, even the angels of heaven covered their faces and cried in fervent worship, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah's reaction was complete awe and brokenness when he said, woe is me, for I'm undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. The Apostle Paul knew this spiritual mourning over sin as well when he wrote, what a wretched man that I am who will rescue me from this body of death. Not only ought we mourn over personal sins, but sometimes we should mourn over the sin that is so pervasive in this fallen world. The world is so deprived. The world lacks integrity. 
It's full of injustice, cruelty, and selfishness. When we are in our right minds and we see God rightly and the sense of purity that's in his word and understand the loving kindness from the the gospel of Jesus Christ, it is enough to make us mourn. How are we as Christians to relate to civil authority and what our biblical responsibilities are towards civil authority? But before we look directly at these verses, 13 through 17, I want us to consider a couple of contextual issues that play an important role on how we view this passage. Just two. First, what Peter has already told us in the preceding verses of this epistle shapes how we approach and interpret these five verses. In previous messages on 1 Peter, we considered how Peter stresses the indicatives of salvation before giving commands and imperatives. Remember that indicatives are those things God has done, those things God is doing, and those things God will do. It's important that before we examine ourselves and the commands that God gives us, that we are sensible and mindful and awake to those indicatives that Peter has already told us. Christianity is not a bunch of do's and don'ts. We don't practice moralism like so many in this fallen world of ours. The gospel of Jesus Christ is not reduced to just some improvements in your behavior. We worship the living triune God who has manifested himself in the world, in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ, his only begotten son. Indeed, the God-man, Jesus Christ, is the only one who will live a sinless life here in this fallen world. And though he lived sinlessly, he died in the place of sinners as their substitute on a Roman cross. He bore the wrath of God the Father, that justice and punishment due to us as sinners. He took to himself in order to save rebel sinners like you and I. 2 Corinthians 5.21, the Apostle Paul says, For he, that is the Father, made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. When Jesus declared from the cross, it is finished, our Savior had accomplished our salvation. He rose from the dead after three days and was seen by his disciples for 40 days, and then he ascended into heaven where he's seated at the right hand of God the Father. That's where Jesus reigns supremely over this fallen world and over his kingdom. No one has ever seen God the Father at any time, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father. He has declared him to us. Jesus Christ has explained God to us. In John's gospel, we read, the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And of his fullness, we have all received and grace for grace. For the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. We do not practice self-righteous moralism but we have been saved by the grace of God. By the Holy Spirit, God has quickened our dead hearts and made us alive in Jesus Christ. We're united to Christ, our Lord and Savior. 
We're in union with Jesus Christ, who is the head of the body, the church of which we are members. He has given us the gifts of faith and repentance. Praise God. We are living stones in the temple of God, and Jesus Christ is our chief cornerstone in this spiritual temple. Any and all of our good works flow from these wonderful indicatives. We obey from a heart of gratitude. Not to merit God's favor. Jesus has already done that for us. We obey by grace as we walk by faith. Our obedience is in the reflection or is a reflection of the gratitude that's in our heart for the salvation that Jesus Christ has accomplished. God is a God of truth. God is a God of his holy law. God is a God of justice. Thanks be to God. He is the God of truth and grace. Grace and truth. Peter puts it this way in chapter one, verses three through five. He said, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, and that does not fade away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by your own hard efforts? No, who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. In verses 17b to 21 of chapter one, Peter writes this, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but by the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. He indeed was foreordained before the foundations of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Wow, what wonderful indicatives Peter puts before his readers before laying out God's commands and duties that his adopted children are responsible to do. If you're a true Christian, you've been purchased, you've been bought You've been redeemed from your aimless conduct with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. Jesus Christ was manifest in these last times for you. Look at the verses just before this morning's passage. Verses nine to 12. Follow as I read them. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people, but now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Beloved, I beg you, as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles." that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day 
of visitation. I think Peter is making a critical point here. Just before giving him this command on how to relate to the civil government, he reminds these persecuted believers in the Roman Empire that they are indeed a chosen generation, chosen by God Almighty, a royal priesthood. They offer up prayers and worship as royal priests, a holy nation. They're set apart from sin. His own special people, the adopted children of God, his own special people. And then he says, they're sojourners and pilgrims. Down here on this earth, they're passing through. And that because all that God has done, is doing, and will do for them, they're to conduct themselves honorably among the non-Christian world. Believers are to live with beautiful behavior that will bring glory to God in the day of visitation. May the world see from our good conduct that we're of another world, that we're not of this fallen world, but we're destined for a renewed earth. We look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now I'm a patriot and I love the Constitution but it's all gonna burn up. And secondly, before we look at the passage, I want us to think about what was taking place historically at the time within the Roman Empire that may have prompted Peter to write these five verses. Peter was probably writing this epistle during the reign of Nero from 54 to 68 BC. And before Nero, you had Emperor Claudius and before him, Caligula, rulers who were cruel, Think of men like Hitler and Stalin and Mao Zedong. The Roman emperors had taken issue with both the Jews and the Christians for a number of reasons. Historians provide us uh, some reasons for why Christians were persecuted in the early church period. Roman emperors were much opposed to any god which the empire did not recognize. The empire had many gods and many lords, but it did not own the God of the Christians. The Christian faith preached one God over all the earth. Heathen gods were idols, and Christians denounced idolatry. Christians prayed for the kingdom of Christ to spread through all parts of the earth. The emperors regarded this as a very dangerous program. Christians did not join pagans in their heathen worship, nor did they partake in idolatrous acts or social and civic occasions. Also, Christians met with Christians sometimes of necessity secretly, and some came to be regarded as members of a secret society, unsociable in their behavior. It was easy to accuse them of plotting against the Roman state. Christians were regarded as threatening the financial, political, and religious interests of various classes of people, the priest, the makers of idols, the sellers of idols, salesmen of sacrificial animals, and so on. It was popularly believed that Christians aroused the anger of the Roman gods. And if these Christians would be held accountable, then those gods would reply by ending famines, ending earthquakes, ending military defeats, and similar punishments on the empire. 
in such a difficult environment with leaders like Nero, Claudius, and Caligula, we can understand why Peter would write to these suffering saints, beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lust, which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable amongst the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. And then our passage. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as an excuse for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. Now with these preparatory thoughts considered, I'd like us to briefly analyze what Peter says in these five verses from chapter two, verse 13 to 17, and I'd like us to divide our time under four headings. First, God's purpose for civil government in verse 14b, Second, God's command for Christians to submit to civil government, verses 13 and 14. Third, God's reasons why Christians are to submit to civil government, verses 15 and 16, and a bit of verse 13. And then, number four, four summary commands for Christians living in a fallen world from verse 17. So first, God's purpose for civil government. You'll notice in verse 14b, it says, for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. In verse 14b, Peter explains the role of government is to restrain evil and praise virtue. We don't want to defund the police because The purpose of government is to restrain evil and praise virtue. This purpose of government extends beyond the king as supreme to all those under him as well, to governors and to those sent by the king and the governors. Clearly we see that the responsibility for civil authorities is to punish and restrain evildoers and to praise and protect those who do good. The civil authority has a military to protect us from foes, foreign. And we have state and local police to protect us from foes, domestic. Even the most oppressive governments hold evil in check to some extent, keeping society from completely collapsing into chaos and anarchy. A wicked government is better than no government. I've never lived in chaos and anarchy, but I, I, can, I can use my imagination. It's every man for himself. The strong survive. The weak, the children, the handicapped, they won't survive with chaos and anarchy. So even a wicked government is better than no government at all. 
Peter presents ideas here similar to the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 13, verse 3 and 4, where Paul writes this, For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the, of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same, for he is God's minister to you. Now remember, Paul is writing this probably when either Claudius or Nero is emperor, for he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain, for he is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Paul makes clear that government is ordained by God. Indeed, that every particular governmental authority is ordained by God. Paul says, for he, that is, the civil government, is God's minister to you for good. And that he, the civil government, is God's minister and avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Civil authority is an institution established by God to accomplish some of his purposes on the earth. Christians should give thanks for their government as an institution put there by God. Greg Nichols surveys the Bible regarding this proposition that God has established civil government, even if they be evil and or came to power through violent imperialism or by way of a wicked coup d'etat. However they came to power, they're ultimately established by our sovereign God for his glory. Nichols writes this, the master of the fallen world justly appointed the cherubim as guardians of the Garden of Eden, Genesis 3.24. After the flood, he justly ordained the Noahic covenantal economy to order life on earth while it remains, Genesis 9, 1-17. And within that framework, he justly delegated to man the power of the sword. Whoso sheds man's blood by man shall his blood be shed, Genesis 9, 6. Upon the growth and spread of Noah's family, he justly established national life and identity. Upon the proliferation of the nations, he justly appointed civil government as his instrument to enact justice among men, Romans 13, 1 through 5. With these thoughts, Nichols references the prophet Habakkuk, Habakkuk in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13, we read this. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. You have appointed them for judgment, O Rock. You have marked them for correction. You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. Why do you look on those who deal treacherously? And hold your tongue when the wicked devours a person more righteous than he. Now God does not approve of all that human rulers do. God never approves of sin. He certainly is not the author of sin. God hates sin. Wherever it is found from the lowest form of authority on up. The Jewish leaders and the Roman soldiers that crucified Christ are culpable for sin, for the sin of crucifying the Lord Jesus. But yet God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son 
that whosoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. Our minds are finite. His mind is infinite. His word is truth. Do you believe his word? He promises to judge all who commit sin and who've not found forgiveness through Jesus Christ. But the fact remains, there is no authority except from God and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Jesus carried his cross and submitted to the authorities and he allowed them to nail him to a cross. We may not like our form of government or the people in it or the policies they pass, but that's not the point. If we rebel against them without biblical cause, we rebel against God who established them. We we rebel against the rule of God. Listen to R.C. Sproul's thoughts on this point that God is the supreme sovereign who uses whoever he wants to be his minister. Quote, the universe in which we live is not a democracy. God does not rule by referendum. It has been said many times that the Ten Commandments are not the Ten Suggestions. There is a hierarchical structure of authority in the universe And at the top of that structure is the sovereign God who reigns and rules. He has delegated all authority in heaven and earth to his son, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. So at the top of this structure of the universe is Christ. Nero was a king when Peter wrote this epistle. He was under the authority of Jesus Christ. But he would not submit because He had a spirit of lawlessness, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. Satan is intimately identified with lawlessness. The plunge of human race into disaster came as a result of our original parents' act of lawlessness, the refusal of Adam and Eve to submit to their creator. Therefore, Every time, and this is still R.C. Sproul, every time we do not submit to the rulers that plague us, We are casting our vote with lawlessness. And every time we go out of our way to submit, to bear witness to the one whose law stands above every law, every time we obey our employer, our school teacher, our parents, we give honor to Christ who reigns over all, who reigns over the whole universe. Let me say that again. Every time we obey our employer, our school teacher, and our parents, we give honor to Christ who reigns over the whole universe. This is where the word honor comes into play. When we were strangers to the kingdom of God, we walked according to the course of this world. We walked according to the power of the prince of the air, according to the lust of our flesh, just as the rest of the world. While we were in that state, the Holy Spirit quickened us, made us new creatures, and called us out of the land of darkness into the land of life. He put within our souls a new inclination, a desire to please God rather than disobey Him. And Sproul says this, so when we offer submission We are not acting like Casper the 
the milk-white toast and offering a doormat-like weakness. We are showing our commitment to the king. Now, preparing for this lesson was hard for me because I love this country and, and I love what this country has stood for for so many years. And I'm, I'm angry at much of what our government has done and is doing. But the Bible calls me to pray for the government, to submit to the government, so long as they're not asking me to violate the word of God. And as I've examined my heart about the government, I've been found wanting. I don't pray for President Biden the way I should. I don't pray for Congress the way I should. And I know my heart's attitude. And maybe because of that, I'm part of the problem, not part of the solution. Just like I was part of the problem on that basketball court 20 years ago. Well, having considered the purpose of civil government under God, which they're ordained to punish evildoers and praise those who do good, secondly, from verses 13 and 14, let's consider God's command for Christians to submit to civil government. Verses 13 and 14 says, Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to the governors, to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Believers here are called by God to submit to governing authorities for the Lord's sake. The central argument for this whole section is submit yourselves. Patriots don't like to hear that. Submit yourselves. Do those words rub you wrong? Submit yourselves. They're not my words. As believers, we're called to submit ourselves voluntarily. This word means to subject ourselves under as like a military rank. We are not to be coerced into our submission, but we, for the Lord's sake, willingly, intentionally, and purposefully subject ourselves and submit ourselves to civil government. Now remember, this is being written to the saints in Asia Minor under Nero. The Apostle Paul puts it beautifully in his letter to Titus. He says this, remind them, that is the believers in Crete, and by implication, all believers, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, no one, not Biden, not your boss at work, to speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing all humility to all men. Willing submission is a common theme throughout the scripture. We see this in Jesus' submission to his parents, Luke 2.51. The church's submission to Christ, Ephesians 5.24. Our need to be subject to God in James 4.7. And the submission of the church members to the elders in 1 Peter 5.5. 5. We must not wait around to be intimidated into submission. 
Submission is something we take responsibility for. And we are positively to initiate our submission. Jesus subjected himself and paid taxes. In Matthew's gospel, chapter 17, verse 24, we read, when they had come to Capernaum, those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the temple tax? Question mark, he said. Peter said, yes. And when he had come into the house, Jesus anticipated him saying to Peter, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter said to him, from strangers. Jesus said to him, then the sons are free? Nevertheless, lest we offend them, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take a fish that comes up first. And when you open the, its mouth, you'll find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. Jesus is our great example. Later in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22, we see Jesus submitting to civil authority in verse 15. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how they might entangle him in his talk. And they sent to him their disciples with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God in truth, nor do you care about anyone for you do not regard the person of men. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their wickedness and said, he perceives even the thoughts of men. Why do you test me, you hypocrites? Show me the tax money. So they brought him a denarius, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And he said to them, render therefore to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. When they, when they had heard these words, they marveled and left him and went their way. The honor we are to show to the government is to be inward, outward, and verbal. And I got that from the Heidelberg Catechism. We must view them as having been appointed over us by the most high God. And if we are wise and we are godly, we will not degrade the civil authorities in our heart. For God gives grace to the humble and resists the proud. God would have us be thankful for the peace and stability that we enjoy because of the civil authorities. They bear the sword against domestic and foreign enemies for our benefit. By outward, I mean, if we are in the presence of a policeman or any civil magistrate who carries civil authority, we are to be respectful, humble, gracious, and in no way dishonoring or provoking toward them. And by verbal, I mean, we should never slander or despise those who serve in civil government. We should speak of them with respect. Now, does this rub you wrong? You live in the self-esteem era. You live where you have a bill of rights. Do you remember how David respected Saul? Because he was the Lord's anointed king. 
regarding the government, we are to show them faithfulness in paying our appropriate taxes fully, and we are never to defraud them of anything, for to defraud is wickedness and theft. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience, says the Apostle Paul. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. R.C. Sproul comments, in my neighborhood, there are stop signs on every corner. Somebody spent a lot of money for nothing because at least eight in 10 people give a hint of slowing down but never come to a direct stop. They do not submit to the ordinance. A friend of mine, a Christian, ran a stop sign while I was riding with him, he says, and I asked him, didn't you see that stop sign? He replied, yes, but I'm not going to let a bit of tin and red paint control my behavior. (laughs) The submission that Peter is calling us to is not to be mindless. We submit ourselves for the Lord's sake, for the glory of God of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For his honor and the advancement of his kingdom is to be our motive. We obey governing authorities ultimately because of our fear of God and our reverence and obedience to our Lord Jesus Christ. If we disobey governing authorities without just cause, we do so because of a lack of fear of God and a lack of our reverence and obedience to our Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ. Now, many of you are probably on the edge of your seat waiting for this. There is one clear implication of this. The ruling powers should be resisted if they command us to violate the Lord's will. For then we must obey God rather than men. If the civil authorities ask us to do something that is forbidden by God, we must obey God and not comply. If the civil authorities command us to not obey a clear command of God, we must obey God and set their mandate aside. We have many examples of those who obeyed God rather than man and paid the ultimate price for their allegiance to God. James was put to death by Herod Agrippa. In Acts 22, 2, we learn of his death by the Roman sword, which most likely was a public beheading. I can imagine the Apostle James placing his own neck upon the chopping block, showing his allegiance to his Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen was stoned to death for preaching the truth of the gospel in the, in, in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And in recent months, we've seen Daniel and his three friends obeying God rather than man. But remember, Daniel and those three honored the pagan king and worked diligently for the pagan king with honorable obedience, grace, and respect up until they they were forced to obey God or king. Then they submitted to Almighty God, all while being willing to pay the ultimate price for doing so. 
And of course, our Lord Jesus Christ himself was unjustly condemned under Pontius Pilate and suffered the agonizing death on a Roman cross. Each one of these examples has brought much glory to God and has advanced his kingdom. Pastor Ventura, who'll be preaching here in three weeks, quotes Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones as, as, Jones, uh, as they analyze Romans 13. And he writes this, quote, the gospel is not only to be believed, but it's also to be practiced. And if we fail to carry it out, then there's no point in any amount of intellectual understanding. Paul wants his first century Roman believers to understand this. He would have the same to be true of us who live in the 21st century. Biden is no Nero, yet. (laughs) He speaks to Christians about their civic responsibility. This can be a controversial subject, but since, as Hodge correctly notes, the Christian religion is adapted to all states of society and all forms of civil government, I believe that all, regardless of the form of government under which they find themselves living, are to obey Paul's inspired words here. Simply stated, Paul was not anti-government, and neither should we be. Christianity is not a call to political revolt or anarchy. Rather, it's a call to submit to the governing authorities and to pray for the kings and all who are in authority that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and reverence. 1 Timothy 2, 1 and 2. We're sojourners. We're passing through. We're exiles. We have a better kingdom, a better, a better, glorious land ahead. Now, I alluded to my grandchild earlier in the story. I want to leave her a better United States. And I have a responsibility to vote, maybe to sign up and observe at the polls maybe to write letters, maybe to peaceful civil disobedience, depending on what the issue is. And we all have our own views on this thing and that thing, and we have liberty in in that way. But all the while, we need to have this heart of submission that the Apostle Peter and the Apostle Paul is talking about. It's hard for us, isn't it? Imagine if you lived in Haiti. Imagine if you lived in China. Imagine if you lived in some of those places and you're reading 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17. Let's move on to our third point. Why Christians are to submit to civil government. In verse 13 it says, for the Lord's sake. And then in verse 15 and 16 it says, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free, yet not using your liberty as an excuse for vice, but as bondservants of God, as slaves of God. Peter argues why believers should submit to civil authorities, because it's God's will. And the foolish and ignorant will be silenced through the virtue of obedient believers. In the original Greek, the word translated in the English as that In verse 15a, for this is the will of God that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. It literally means thus 
is the will of God. Tom Schreiner comments here, because the will of God is thus, namely, that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. The participle doing good is instrumental, emphasizing how unbelievers are silenced. And the silencing could take place in this life or on the judgment day. And then verse 16 explains, as Christians were to submit as those who are free. Not coerced, you're free in Christ. But we must not use our freedom as an excuse for evil. Peter is not merely concerned about the outward actions of believers, but also their inward motivations that inform their submission. Our voluntary subjection to civil authority is an expression of our freedom in Christ. We have been ransomed or set free by Christ's blood, so we are no longer in bondage to sin, which means the submission that we render is not a slavish submission or a submission from a position of weakness, but from a position of freedom in Christ. And as free people, we're not to use our freedom as an excuse to indulge in selfish, evil behavior. Were you upset back in the summer after George Floyd's murder or unfortunate death? Were you upset when the cities were burning? Are you as upset that people in Canada can't move from east to west? Is there a difference? There's a difference in their views of the people, but is there a difference in what they're doing in disrupting government? And is there a better way, is there a more biblical way to show their desire that their rights are heard. There's nothing wrong with marching out in front of an abortion clinic, but there's something wrong with taking a machine gun inside, isn't there? True freedom liberates us to do what is good. As Christians, we should never respond to the orders of government like slaves but we're to obey out of strength because of our freedom in Christ Jesus. We can even take it further than that. Genuine freedom is experienced only when we become God's slaves. Everyone on earth is either a slave of sin or a slave of God. Listen to the Apostle Paul in Romans 6. He says, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? Certainly not. Do you not know that to whom you present yourselves slaves to obey, you are that one's slaves whom you obey, whether of sin leading to death or of obedience leading to righteousness? But God be thanked that though you were slaves of sin, yet you obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine to which you were delivered. And having been set free from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. I speak in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves of uncleanness and of lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves of righteousness for holiness. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What fruit did you have then in the things of which you are now ashamed? 
For the end of those things is death. But now, having been set free from sin and having become slaves of God, you have your fruit to holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that brings us to our final point. But let me, let me reiterate at the beginning some of the concerns I had at the beginning. There are qualifications and exceptions that we could discuss. The doctrine of the lesser magistrates and other doctrines. We could debate whether we should have been a patriot or a loyalist in the American Revolution. And I personally argue for the patriots, although I have great respect for those that argue on the side of the loyalist. And I, I don't have time to get into that now. But I think those times of resistance and rebellion are like, are like one in a, in, in, in a century or one in two and a half centuries. They're not something that come by every decade. They're rare. They're rare occasions. So the final point here is four commands from God for living in a fallen world. See, that, that's, that's the backdrop of this sermon. We live in a fallen world. You know, even before sin came into the world, there would be need for civil government. Even when there was no sin, as the world populates and gets larger and larger, and you create a bridge over a river, and you've got thousands of people that want to get on that bridge, they're sinless people. But, but there needs to be order. God is a God of order. That's why he's created marriage and the family, the Sabbath rest and worship, government, and labor. These were all instituted at creation, some of them before sin even came into the world. But we live in a fallen world. We live in a fallen world. Be careful about just pulling your saber out. Make sure that you're following scripture and that you have a biblical cause before you take out that saber. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the king. Honor all people, the whole world. Every human being is made in the image of God. You're to honor them and respect them. Even when you drive by and you see that, that homeless guy who's making 350 bucks a day and acting like he's really sick and handicapped and you know he's not. He's made in God's image. Honor all people. Love the brotherhood, the church. Fear God. Our gracious triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Fear God. Now, honor the king civil government and its leaders. Peter concludes his discourse concerning the duty of all Christians with four excellent commands. First, honor all men. Respect is to be given to all men, all men, even socialists and communists. They're made in God's image. You know, some capitalists have gone too far. They're greedy. And they open the door for the socialist because the socialist sees that greed and sees it as unfair. 
I'm no socialist. But we're to honor all men. The wicked must be honored, for they too are men in God's image. Proverbs 17, 5 says this, he who mocks the poor reproaches his maker. He who is glad at the calamity will not go unpunished. Why are you not homeless? Why are you not living in a war-torn nation? Why are you spared from living in chaos and anarchy? What has made you to differ? The grace of God. The grace of God. So first, honor all people. Next, secondly, love the brotherhood. All Christians are family. We're united to Christ. Christ is the head. We're related in the same interest, having communion with one another, and we're going to the same home. We're all adopted children, and we should love one another with a special affection. So second, love the brotherhood. Thirdly, fear God with the utmost reverence. If we fail to fear God, then the other three commands cannot be performed in the way God would want us to perform them. So third, fear God. Show him reverence and respect. You know, one of the ways that we fear God is we listen to him. And the way we listen to God is we open the scriptures and we read them. Are you reading the scriptures? Are you listening to God? Are you sojourners and exiles passing through, looking forward to the, to the hope of the new heavens and the new earth? Or are you permanently got your roots here? It's all about this world. Fourthly, Honor the king with that heartfelt honor that moves us to pray for those in government, those who have civil authority over us, for they've been placed there by God himself. I don't know God's sovereign will, but it might be, it might be, even though I sign up to observe the polls, and I write letters, and I vote for who I want, it might be that we slowly digress and become a third world nation. It might be. But I'm still a sojourner passing through with a great hope. And I still can worship God and be thankful for the gospel. Because it's all gonna burn up anyways. Now again, you're looking at a history teacher that loves his country and studies the Constitution. I have a 10-volume set of George Bancroft, the first American historian. It saddens my heart to see what's happening. But you know what? This isn't my home. So let me end, let me end by reading to you a hymn that I think sums up everything we've been trying to say or everything the Apostle Peter's been saying. This is a hymn, Great King of Nations, Hear Our Prayer. Great King of Nations, hear our prayer while at your feet we fall and humbly with united cry to you for mercy call. The guilt is ours, 
but grace is yours. Oh, turn us not away, but hear us from your lofty throne and help us when we pray. Our Father's sins were manifold and ours no less we own. Yet wondrously from age to age your goodness has been shown. When dangers like a stormy sea beset our country round, to you we looked, to you we cried, and help in you was found. With one consent we meekly bow beneath your chastening hand. And pouring forth confession meet, mourn with our mourning land. With pitying eye, behold our need, as thus we lift our prayers. Correct us with your judgments, Lord, then let your mercy spare. Well, I want to just leave you with a few, a few applications here. Pray for your government. Pray for your government. Examine your heart's attitude towards civil authority. Don't defraud the government. Pay your taxes. You might need to call 911 in an emergency. Do your duty as a Christian. Glorify God and pay your taxes. Always obey God rather than man when forced to choose God or civil authorities. And then remember that as a Christian, you're an exile and a sojourner. You're a pilgrim. Don't get too comfortable here. And then also remember the word submission and submit. It's all through First Peter. Submission is manly. Submission is godly. Submission is tough. It's Navy SEAL-like. Let me close. I'm gonna, this will be at the end, I promise. If you have your Bibles, just turn to James 4. I'm gonna read a couple verses there, and then we'll pray. James 4, and follow with me as I read the first 10 verses and then we'll pray. Where, James 4 verse 1, where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war, Yet you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers, adulteresses, do you not know that the friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealousy? but he gives more grace. Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, submit to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. Draw near to God 
and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Lament and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Well, may our Lord and Savior lift you up because you followed this guidance. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the United States of America. We thank you for our founding fathers, our Constitution, the Bill of Rights, and all the freedoms that we enjoy. We pray that you'd forgive us for taking it for granted. We pray that you would help us, Father, by your Spirit to pray for our nation. And we pray that you would help us to long for the new heavens and the new earth. Thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ that has saved us from our sins. Thank you for the forgiveness of our sins. And thank you for the hope of heaven. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org. Dot O-R-G.